Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Research universities create opportunity. They create opportunity for individual students by inspiring them, educating them, orienting them toward the future, teaching them that they are responsible for their own lives, and preparing them to advance the human condition. Research universities also create opportunities for industries, cities, nations, and regions by preparing educated citizens and by direct application of new knowledge, new understandings, and new technologies that flow from their research and scholarship. Research universities create opportunity for our Earth and all its people because knowledge and understanding pave the path to peace and because scientific knowledge and engineering capabilities are essential to meeting the great global challenges of energy, water, environmental sustainability, food, health, and security. Only through the lives, work, and leadership of those who are advantaged by education, research, and knowledge can we hope to advance the prosperity and quality of life of our world's population a population that has doubled during my lifetime and may soon approach 9 billion people. Having said that, this is not the view everybody takes of us. I cut this out of an article on the front page of the New York Times two days ago. Universities aspire to prestige, and that is achieved by increasing selectivity, getting a research mission, and having faculty do as little teaching as possible. Now, I, of course, am deeply offended by that, but as in many strong statements, there is some kernel there of something we all need to think about very hard. We must not actually become this, nor do I believe we currently are. The structure and philosophy of the modern research university are largely derived by those developed at Humboldt University in Germany early in the 19th century. The essential element of the modern research university is its commitment to combining teaching and research in a single institution. This then new approach to higher education migrated across the Atlantic Ocean and took roots in the United States, specifically at the Johns Hopkins University. From there, it diffused across North America and throughout Europe as new universities were established and as research became a more central purpose of research universities. At each stage and location, the structure was modified and adapted to fit the local conditions and purposes and to both lead and adapt to new advancing knowledge and changing social needs. As the age of technology advanced in the second half of the 20th century, the research university migrated and evolved further, as is well symbolized especially by the rapid rise of the Indian Institutes of Technology and by the establishment of many new research universities in Asia, and finally and ironically in a somewhat revised or Americanized form back again to Europe. I would like to discuss six lessons from the research university of the 21st century that the university of the 21st century can learn from the experience of those in the 20th century. The first lesson is that teaching and research must be intimately intertwined 
and must be assigned equal importance. Teaching and research, in our view, are inseparable, and it is their synergy that defines the essence of a research university. Many years ago, Frederick Terman, the legendary provost of Stanford University, was asked whether he wanted Stanford to be a research university or a teaching university. Terman's answer was, I want it to be a learning university. The research university of the 21st century must be devoted to such learning in the broadest sense, learning from discovery as well as through teaching and exploration of the past. In the long run, I believe that making universities exciting, creative, adventurous, rigorous, demanding, and and empowering environments is more important than simply specifying curricular details. The second lesson is that the quality of a research university can be no better than the quality of its faculty. The faculty defines the university. The research university of the 21st century must strive to attract, nurture, and empower the very best professors. This essential task of building or sustaining a world-class faculty requires commitment, fortitude, patience, and adherence to high academic values as well as high aspirations. Some well-experienced senior faculty members can and should be hired, but in the end, it is perhaps even more important that young faculty grow up through the ranks of a given university. Lesson three is that science can flourish only in an open environment. Science languishes in a closed environment. The free flow of people and ideas across institutional and political boundaries is essential to the functioning of a great university. The very process of conducting science requires that others challenge one's hypotheses, independently verify the results of experiments, and validate theoretical conclusions. Science cannot be done in isolation. And of course, interactions among scholars, scientists, and engineers who have diverse perspectives and varied experiences lead to creativity and innovation. Such interchange is the very essence of research university. Maintaining an intellectually open environment requires a high degree of institutional autonomy and protection from political and ideological forces. Lesson four is that it is essential to give great freedom to new young faculty members to study and teach what they believe is important. They should not function as research assistants to senior professors. The wisdom and perspective of senior scholars is important, but most dramatic new insights and innovations come from brilliant young men and women. But with great intellectual freedom comes great responsibility. The faculty, even early in their careers, must always be held to the highest academic standards, especially through the evaluation and constructive criticism inherent in the peer review process. The freshness that comes from young faculty and from the continual flow of students to an institution is the key to a great university. Lesson five is that competition, 
competition among universities to, to attract and retain the very best faculty and students, and competition among professors and research groups in the free marketplace of ideas engenders excellence. Such interinstitutional uh, competition may at first seem expensive, inefficient, and complicated, especially because today universities must compete on a global scale. Nonetheless, the competition drives improvements in research, in teaching, and in educational policies, working environments, facilities, and most importantly, in ideas and people. Great professors attract great students, and great students attract great professors. The final lesson, lesson six, is that fundamental scholarship and research must exist on an equal plane with highly applied research and innovation. As we enter the 21st century, we are very aware that research universities create opportunity for nations and regions through the transfer of technology and innovations to the marketplace. Industrially relevant work is increasingly important and an environment that is entrepreneurial, especially in the intellectual sense, gives rise to relevance in education. However, there is a danger that in our rush to solve practical problems and transfer technology to industry, we could lose our bearings and forget that there are still more profound purposes of universities to discover truth and nature, to celebrate ideas, and advance the human spirit. We must not allow our universities to become overly utilitarian. Universities are places where ideas must be exchanged, evaluated, and integrated. Fundamental, curiosity-driven research conducted to discover truths about nature must play a central role equal to that of research that is applied more directly to industry and to the solution of major problems facing humankind. At my own institution, MIT, pure science and scholarship exist side by side, hand in hand, and with, high, and with uh, mutual respect with highly applied, industrially relevant work. Both are conducted with mutual respect and both are valued. Both are subjected to the same rigorous standards and they must inform each other. I believe that this is one of the primary lessons, about primary reasons why MIT grew to have great stature in the world of universities. Now with that as a bit of background, <clears throat> I'd like to turn to something Dick asked me to concentrate a little bit on this evening, which is transferring technology to society. But before I do that, I want to present a couple of contextual views that we must keep in mind even as we talk about these very practical applications and implications. Many years ago, Gerard O'Neill at uh, Princeton University did something I wish more people would do. He actually did a very careful study of people who in the past had predicted the future to find out whether or not they were right and why they were right and why they were wrong and so forth. And the main lesson that came out of this is that in predicting the future, we almost always underestimate the rate of technological progress and overestimate 
the rate of social progress. Martin Luther King said a similar thing much more pointedly. He once wrote that our scientific power has outrun our spiritual power. We have guided missiles and misguided men. So we must always keep these in mind as we talk about what it is of importance that we transfer to the society around us. But nonetheless, science, engineering, and technology are simply essential to meeting the grand challenges facing humankind. The National Academy of Engineering has actually recently uh, formed a very interesting little committee chaired by Bill Perry at Stanford University, our uh, former Secretary of Defense, and had a wide variety of really innovative and accomplished engineers, scientists, and one medical doctor. They're quite diverse. They were from all over the world. It included people like Larry Page, one of the founders of Google, uh, Craig Venter, Bob Langer, uh, Jane Lubchenco, who, by the way, just uh, became the head of NOAA and the new government, and a lot of people like this, Bernadine Healy. And they came up with 14 such challenges, and the goal was to find a set of challenges that they believed were doable, that we could actually meet if we put our minds and our talent and resources to them on a time scale of generally 10 or 20 years. And I'm not going to walk all through that, but my point is that they have to do with things like energy and sustainability, dealing with global warming, treating our environment better. Another group had to do with the role of engineering in improving medicine and through systems thinking and informatics and so forth, improving the effectiveness and efficiency of the delivery of health care to people, both in the United States and around the world. The third group clustered around the general theme of security with a very broad definition, reducing vulnerability to both human threats, things like nuclear terrorism, and to natural threats as we faced in things like, uh, like Katrina. And the final group really had to do with expanding and enhancing human capability and to use the word that those who wrote the report used, human joy. Well, what is it that allows our universities to do this? The story, which many of you know, actually begins uh, toward the end of World War II. And I'll come back to that in just a moment. But the fact is that since the end of the war, we evolved what most of us refer to as the innovation system of the United States. Now, this is a very loosely organized thing. It involves government, academia, and industry doing three things. Through the research, primarily conducted in this case in universities, we create new knowledge and new technology. By educating young men and women, we teach them to create and understand new technology and knowledge themselves. And finally, through our system of entrepreneurship and so forth, move new ideas and technologies to the marketplace as products, processes, and services. Now, toward the end of World War II, President Roosevelt asked Vannevar Bush, who had been in charge of mobilizing the industrial and scientific communities for the war effort, to look ahead because he believed the war was soon going to come to an end. And he wrote a letter to Bush, which is somewhat 
some ways more interesting than the report that Bush uh, uh, finally put out. I'll come back to that in a moment. But here's a sentence that really strikes me. He says, new frontiers of the mind are before us. And if they are pioneered with the same vision, boldness, and drive with which we have waged this war, we can create a fuller and more fruitful employment and a fuller and more fruitful life. And he then goes on to ask Bush to form a committee and come back with a plan for the nation to do this. And that plan, which all of you know, was called Science, the Endless Frontier, and in fact was, uh, uh, was delivered uh, not to FDR, but to Truman. I should have changed that because FDR had died. Uh, but this was all done in the space of a few months, about nine months. And that, to this day, is the plan that led to the National Science Foundation that Dick used to head and to the fact that our universities in this country are our fundamental research uh, infrastructure. But there's a sentence in that report that doesn't get so much play that I think is extraordinarily important. Bush says this, If availability and not the circumstance of family fortune determines who shall receive higher education, then we shall be assured of constantly improving quality at every level of scientific activity. A very strong statement that people in all walks of life uh, can be brilliant and that education should not be made just available on the basis of family wealth. Now, this system has been enormously effective. Uh, Most people who have studied it uh, estimate that 50% or more of our economic growth during the last 60 years in this country was due to technological innovation, and that an awful lot of that innovation actually came from our research universities. Now, that statement is frequently challenged by people who say, well, do you really do things that are important or not? Here is a list of a few things. It's not a random list, I will admit, but a few things that actually came out of our public and private research universities since the end of the war. Computing, the laser, the internet, the fundamentals behind the global positioning uh, satellite system, numerically controlled machining, the basis of all modern manufacturing, the organization and deployment of the World Wide Web, financial engineering. I almost took that off the slide this afternoon, but I decided to be intellectually honest, I better leave it on. By the way, Tom Friedman had this wonderful statement in his column back in September as things started imploding, and he said, you know, this country needs to get back to making real things based on real engineering rather than financial engineering. So I used that statement in a few talks, and then my friend Andy Lowe at uh, MIT, who's one of the great financial engineers in the world, explained to me that, well, that's only sort of true. What we need are better financial engineers. (laughs) Much of modern medicine, we could keep on going, certainly the genetic revolution. So very important things do come out of our research universities. Paul Romer, the economist at Stanford, about a decade ago did a study of economic growth in the United States and in the UK. And here's what he said in that report. 
explaining this curve. Everything we know about history, technology, and economic theory tells us that an increase of this magnitude would not have been possible in the absence of technological change. So we do important things. And in any event, at the end of the day, it is the long-term basic research that must, above all else, continue to be done. This is the key to the future, the things that you can't always predict the outcome, but eventually the pieces of knowledge and technology that drive us forward begin to come together. Without this input of new basic research and knowledge discovery, our innovation system will wind down. But things are changing. This is a new century, and looking very simplistically from the perspective of an engineer or scientist, the last century, during which most of us spent most of our careers, was sort of a century based on big, fast things. Physics, electronics, high-speed transportation, high-speed communication were the things that drove the last half of the 20th century. But as we've entered the 21st century, you'd have to say that the key elements appear to be things like biology and information systems and science, but also, and critically important, looking back again to big issues like energy, water, and sustainability. It's a new century in which the R&D investments are spread around the world very differently than they were even a decade or two ago. The point of this map is that we're very quickly approaching a point where about a third of the R&D in the world is done in North America, about a third in Europe, and about a third in Asia. That map is changing very rapidly to spread things around the globe. Where do we stand in all of this? Well, uh, just to state it very simply, we're still on top. We're still king of the hill. Nobody compares to us overall with the quality of research and development, but we are rapidly losing our market share, if you will. That is, the share of output by any measure uh, uh, around, uh, around the world. We lead in R&D investments, but we're only in the, among the pack of leaders when it comes to the fraction of R&D uh, that we, uh, the fraction of our GDP, our gross domestic product, that we spend on research and development. And in every metric you can look at, we have lost share in the world. Well, this is neither surprising nor is it bad in my view because, among other things, it means that the denominator is getting bigger. That is, the rest of the world is coming up, becoming active, and I happen to believe that that, in the end of the day, is very good. There are new players in the world. Uh, here's a little uh, uh, graph that will give you a sense of where the expertise is today. And in this case, the sort of measure of expertise, the young professional workforce, men and women less than seven years beyond graduation, looking at China, India, and the U.S. And you see in the blue bars that China already totally dominates in the sheer number of engineers uh, in, in their younger workforce, that India totally dominates in the finance and accounting sector, and that only in life science does the United States have a small lead? So again, if we had drawn this curve 20 years ago, it would have looked nothing like this. More importantly, where will the expertise be? Well, let's look at who's coming out of universities. 
This chart shows the first engineering degrees, for the most part, bachelor's degrees in all the fields of engineering. And the big message, of course, is the rise of China. Graduating now over 250,000 uh, engineers per year, while we in the U.S. are graduating down around 55 or 60. Well, again, you might say, well, that's not surprising for heaven's sakes. They have over one and a half billion people. You'd expect them to graduate more engineers. But nonetheless, look at the trend lines, the way these things are, uh, are moving. Uh, by the way, a few of you, certainly Dick knows that these numbers are a little controversial, and uh, we had some uh, very inflated figures that worked their way into the draft of a very important National Academy study, and we immediately got pilloried all around the world. And uh, so I use the more conservative figures here that come from our own National Science Foundation. Last June, I was in Beijing and uh, had the opportunity to speak to the Chinese Academy. And my talk was preceded by an overview uh, by the vice president of the Chinese Academy of Engineering. And I was just dying to see what numbers he was going to use because I knew he would address this. Well, he used the U.S. NSF. He'd plotted the same graph, so I guess they're accurate. New speed. Look at this. How long does it take a new innovative product to reach a quarter of the population in the United States? If you go back to the automobile, once it was marketed, 55 years. That was literally in those days a lifetime. Because don't forget, during the last century, our lifetimes, life expectancy basically doubled largely because of the input of science and engineering to produce clean water, uh, preserve food, and so forth. But anyway, the automobile took a lifetime. The telephone took about a working career lifetime, 35 years. By the time you got to radio, it was down a little over 20. Personal computer, cell phone, a dozen years. By the time the World Wide Web was launched, seven years until 25% of the households in the United States were using the World Wide Web. So when we say things are speeding up, in fact they are. It's a century with new jobs. Here is some historical data and some prognostication. If you go back to 1800, not surprisingly, 90% of the population in the United States lived and worked on farms. They grew food for their own family, then for their communities, then ultimately for the nation. But during that century and a half, as we got up toward 1950, that had dropped to less than 10% and down to just 1% or 2% today, being replaced by what? Manufacturing, by making things, big things out of metal and wood and plastic and so forth. Then that began to shift, and during the last half century, we've seen a dramatic decline in the United States in the fraction of our workforce in the manufacturing sector and a corresponding uh, uh, dramatic increase in the number of people working in the service industry, especially that enabled by information technology. Now, there's a very fundamental issue here on which I don't claim to be an expert, but I think many of us are very worried that that might not be a sustainable trend at the end of the day. But who's ready to participate in this new technology-based century? Well, Asia, Europe, and the United States. 
Across Asia, about uh, 20% of all university students study engineering. Across Europe, it's about 13%. In the United States, it's 4.5%. Interestingly, the fraction of our students who study in natural sciences is just about constant, plus or minus uh, a couple of percent. But I believe, not surprisingly, at least in my role at the National Academy of Engineering, this is a big problem. And indeed, it actually is. It's not all about numbers, but uh, my friend Floyd Kwame, uh, who was, uh, until he retired recently, a senior partner at Kleiner Perkins, one of the great venture capital outfits in Silicon Valley, says this, venture capital is the search for smart engineers, so we can't ignore numbers. Unfortunately, fewer than 15% of U.S. high school graduates have the science and math background to even consider going to engineering school. So what have we done? How have we had all of this success? Well, to a very large extent, openness of our campuses and immigration have saved us from ourselves. Our science and engineering PhD students, as most if not all of you are aware, are highly international these days. Almost 60% of the PhD degrees in engineering fields today go to non-U.S. citizen students. The master's degree, that's relatively high, too. It's about a third of the natural science students, somewhat less when you get to the social sciences. And not surprisingly, at the bachelor's degree or associate's degree, it's a fairly small fraction. But it is the dominant fraction of our PhDs in engineering and a very major fraction of those in science. Most today are coming to our shores from Asian countries. And again, looking here from 1985 uh, up to 2005, you see the story again is China, sending a great number of bright young men and women to study here with fairly constant but substantial percentages from places like India, Taiwan, and some growth in those from South Korea. Now, this has had wonderful, positive impact on our country. It's improved the quality of our universities, it's brought great faculty to our campuses, and it has played a very major role in our science and engineering-based companies. This is from a study that's about to be published uh, uh, by uh, my friend Vivek Wadwa, who is now at, uh, at Harvard and also uh, holds an appointment at Duke University. This is a survey about companies that were established during the decade from 1995 to 2005 in semiconductors, computers, and so forth, down to defense and aerospace. These bars represent the fraction of those companies that were started here in the U.S. by immigrants. And you see it's 35% fully in the semiconductor business, computer communications, pretty low in defense for the, uh, the obvious reasons, 
and beginning to grow in other fields like bioscience and probably eventually environmental. So we've been very dependent on these extraordinary people who have come here. But the bad news is, for us, they are increasingly returning home. And here's why. The Kaufman Foundation, uh, uh, through uh, Vivek's work, has just published a report in the last week or so uh, in which, um, and I say this particularly with Mr. Yankelovich with us today, uh, they say up front this is not a strictly scientific survey because we didn't have the census data to sample things exactly correctly, but nonetheless they queried 1,700 Chinese and Indian folks who had lived in this country, come here to study or come to work, and had returned home in the last uh, several years. And here are some of the key reasons why. They believed that the speed of their professional growth would be somewhat better or much better in their home country than they find it now in the United States. And that's a huge fraction in those top two clusters. That's about three-quarters of, of all of them. And perhaps more frightening still, given the way our economy is driven these days, return home because they think the opportunity to start a company and grow it is somewhat better or much better in their home country. So we used to just have sort of anecdotes about this, but we're beginning to get data and beginning to understand the motivations. So with this as background, let's think a little bit about science and engineering research in this new century. Its nature is also uh, changing somewhat. Science and technology today are absolutely interdependent. In the last century, scientists discovered engineers designed and created, and medical doctors healed. Today, these three are melding together very much. Everything is moving in a, not everything, but most things are moving in a quite interdisciplinary direction. To see that, just think about the revolution in genomics. Now, we might think of this as being medicine or biology or agriculture, but the fact is it's a fusion of biology, things as obscure as combinatorial mathematics, robotics, automation, microfabrication, all coupled together with clinically-based medical insight. So-called nanotechnology is, again, a fusion of technologies and sciences that involves almost every one of the natural scientific disciplines and computer science and, and engineering disciplines. And what we'll be hearing more and more about in the coming decade, synthetic biology, an amazing melding of life science and information science. And finally, we will be performing more and more work in what's called Pasteur's Quadrant. For those of you who don't know what that term means, this little diagram is based on a, a very in, uh, interesting book published several years ago by the late Don Stokes at uh, Princeton University. He was actually trying to understand how Vannevar Bush's uh, uh, mode of, of uh, innovation in the United States and science and engineering front, uh, uh, endless Frontier had played out and what was changing. But as, thing, as he thought about that, he realized that most research 
could be put into three different locations. Depending on whether you're motivated by discovering basic truths about nature or whether you're motivated by how the new knowledge is going to be used to practical purpose. And he talked about the two extremes here, uh, the Bohr quadrant, named for Niels Bohr, pure basic research. Bohr, of course, learned how to understand uh, the atom and never had particular concern about how that knowledge would be used. At the other extreme, uh, the Edison quadrant, pure applied research. Thomas Edison basically being uninterested in new scientific discovery. He was sort of a serial systematic inventor after a particular end. We're going to see more and more of this so-called use-inspired basic research that, that Stokes referred to as Pasteur's Quadrant, where you are trying to discover fairly basic new things about nature, but at the same time you're driven toward a potential end use. A great example of that, in addition to Pasteur's own famous work, would be things like the development of the transistor, or we could even say the way in which the atomic bomb was first constructed did this. So this is very useful, and you'll be seeing more and more work in our universities in this upper quadrant. But I noticed on the way through that there's nothing in the lower left-hand quadrant where you neither gain new knowledge about nature nor do anything useful. So I've defined that as the vest quadrant, Dick. So the frontiers are changing. Here's another thing I, I hope I can leave you with this evening as um, an important, at least to me, observation. When we look at engineering and technology, what goes on in industry, what goes on in universities, there's sort of two very different frontiers where we need to make serious new discoveries and innovations. And I'm going to just call them tiny systems and macro systems. Tiny systems, what all the young people are properly excited about today, where everything is getting smaller and faster and more complex. This is the so-called bio-info-nano uh, world, and uh, where we do incredibly wonderful things by combining these seemingly different disciplines. But also, we're going to see, we have to see a return to frontier work at the macro system level because this is, where, this is where things get larger and more complicated but where great social impact and importance resides. This is where we will deal with energy and environment, health care, communications, logistics, manufacturing, and so forth. But it's very interesting. If you look around UCSD, you will instantly find out that the people who are working in this tiny system or bio-nano-info world, uh, they come from science, they come from engineering, they come from every conceivable uh, discipline. They all work together. It's almost all done in teams. And science and engineering have just melded together. You really cannot tell one from the other. And it's very much Pasteur's quadrant. You're discovering new things and applying them, feeding them back. 
On the other hand, and we do not do enough of this, but I'm convinced it's a key to the future, when we look at the large-scale system, we need a similar strong tie, especially with the social sciences. I've tried to sort of show in these Venn diagrams. These are big engineered systems, but they can't actually be accomplished or deployed without the input from social science and management, and I would even argue the humanities and communications. So I think that these overlaps must be better reflected in our university education as we go into this new century. The payoff, by the way, I believe will be the feeding of what we learn about tiny systems into big systems through things like bio-based materials that leave a much smaller uh, uh, environmental imprint uh, in a footprint in their manufacture, biomimetics, which means designing uh, human-based systems on what we learn from the way nature works, personalized predictive medicine, biofuels. We could go on and on, but I think that that bridge is where the big societal payoff for what's actually quite basic research on the left-hand side will pay in, uh, play into important uh, things on the out. Well, here we are. This is sort of the state of things as I read about it in the newspapers, see it on television, and living in Washington, you simply certainly hear lots of doom and gloom and talking to people. Uh, there are all these awful things going on at the moment, every reason in the world to be depressed, but those of you who know me know I'm really an optimist, and last Sunday night, you may have seen Ben Bernanke gave, really, to me, a quite extraordinary interview on 60 Minutes, something he rarely does, and toward the end, he was asked, is this economy going to recover? Are you confident it actually will? And his answer was, the economy will recover in a strong and sustained way because American people are among the most productive in the world, we have the best technology, we have great universities, we have entrepreneurs. So I certainly believe that that is at the core, and it's wonderful seeing somebody with that set of responsibilities beginning to talk about the real economy again. Furthermore, it's the most exciting time for science and engineering in human history, and our leadership is needed. Now, I apologize to uh, Dan Yankelovich before we began about having an amateur up here talking about polling, but here are a couple of interesting polls I saw recently as I was thinking about what to talk about here. American people believe... Who is it the American people believe can lead them to a better future? Apparently it's not the media. doesn't tend to be large corporations, business leaders. I apologize to some of you. Government leaders, well, maybe. But they seem to place the most belief that science and technology leaders and small businesses and entrepreneurs will lead us out of these problems into a better future. But the public view, and more importantly, the reality, is a lot more complicated than this, because here's an answer to another question from a poll taken uh, just this, this January. Americans believe that 
the United States is clearly the technology leader of the 20th century. So this was just a question, which of these countries do you perceive to be the leader of technology advancements in the 20th century? And the United States by far gets the most votes, Japan coming there, for some reason China as well. But the problem with that is that this is the 21st century, and almost half the population believes that one of those other countries will be better able to meet future challenges than the United States. This is not the spirit most of us grew up with and believe we must uh, recapture and rekindle and accelerate. They think poor education is to blame. This was an open-ended question. You know, just uh, why do you think the U.S. is going to fall behind uh, technologically? And only a small number blame it on politicians. A few say it's greed, government regulation, virtually dominated by education, poor education, poor educational system were the comments. The problem is they're right. And I wanted to show you just a couple of interesting little metrics about a problem we all know uh, a lot about. Uh, Here, we always talk about, well, part of the reason the United States doesn't do so well in all these tests is we try to educate everybody here. Well, that's not true. This is the number of 25 to 35-year-olds in the United States today that have degrees beyond a high school education. And you will see that here we are at a little over, a little under 40%. There are other countries beginning to move up to 55%, moving toward 60. But the real problem, as we know, begins in the K-12 system. But I've got some great news for you. Uh, our eighth graders are very confident of their mathematical skills. These results are a little old. They're from 2005. They're from all the people that took the TIMS tests around the world. And you see that the Japanese were not very confident. Only 20% of their kids and the Koreans thought that they were pretty good in math. U.S. very strongly thought they were. Unfortunately, these are the test results. So this is a lot of fun to look at. But on the other hand, it's a very serious point. We keep telling everybody how great they are, but not building the discipline and the inner drive to do well. Here's an even more serious point in my view. The percentage of eighth grade science teachers who actually have a degree in science. And in many of the Asian countries, this is close to 100%. It's up around 90%. In the United States, it's under 60%, and you know lots of horror stories about this. But there's a lot of data recently that shows that the single strongest predictor of how well kids succeed in life, in life, that is getting good jobs, having good income, the single strongest predictor is the quality of education that their teachers in K through 12 had. So this we have to pay a lot of attention to. So to begin to move to the end here, we have to improve education at all levels. We must invest in basic research. We're still at the top in terms of the sheer amount we spend, but we're no longer at the top in terms of the fraction of our GDP. And most of our R&D is actually done in industry. 
done in industry. The government funds, as you can see, uh, about uh, less than half of what is expended in industry. The problem is, from the longer-term perspective, for very appropriate, understandable, and important reasons, uh, industry, for the most part today, does little R and big D. Very little fundamental research contributed to the commons, lots of development and continuous improvement. They have to, to stay alive. So, what about the government? Still a lot of money, $107 billion dollars. Uh, expended on research and development uh, from the uh, U.S. government each year. That's a fairly big number. I mean, you could even bail out a bank or two with that. (laughs) And we all know that it's dominated by defense. That's what you always hear. Defense dominates, and indeed they are almost half of the federal R&D expenditures with about a a quarter in biomedical research, largely NIH, and then everything else, all the physics, engineering, computer science, math, and so forth uh, in that last uh, uh, quarter. But of this, only about a quarter, actually less than 25%, is classified as basic research. And then you say, so who pays for the basic research? Who pays for that 25%? The first thing you see is defense has shrunk to 5%. It didn't used to be that way. And the Defense Department drove a huge part of what today has become the base of U.S. industry in the civilian sector. They backed off from that. It's changing. Totally dominated by NIH. Everything else squeezed into this 38%. And if you look at the curves from 76 uh, up to about uh, uh, up to well into this decade, you will see that in real dollars, the expenditures on physical science and engineering, uh, in this case, I happen to show it as a fraction of GDP. It's even more dramatic if you just look at the dollars. That has been constant to declining throughout this entire period. The life sciences, which is great news, went up remarkably as NIH doubled and so forth. We've got to rebalance this, and we've got to rebalance it, of course, not by working at the top, but by, uh, that is not by cutting NIH down, for heaven's sakes, but by raising the others up. And I'm not going to spend time on this busy chart, but it's just to say this is our total federal uh, energy technology R&D from 78 to the present. So what happened? We had the oil problem, 78, great big jump, went way down to a shadow of its former self, and even today has barely come back up. This needs to be fixed. So, naturally, we at the academies have some ideas about how to do this, and uh, they were put together in a study called Rising Above the Gathering Storm, Energizing and Employing America for a Brighter Economic Future, that provides a template for the federal government uh, that was requested by the Congress of what could be done in K-12 science math education, what could be done in terms of keeping our research base strong, what could be done to attract more bright young men and women into this 
a variety of fields, and finally some policy issues around uh, innovation to make this the place in the world to do innovation so that people are going to continue to want to come here and not just go back home. All of this, together with other work done by the Council on Competitiveness and uh, President Bush's uh, American Competitiveness Initiative, the ACI, came together three summers ago now to create the America Competes Act. It still has not been funded. That has got to be high on the agenda. Well, let me close by making a few comments about the continuing globalization of universities. We sort of looked at the past. Now today, every university recognizes it needs to do some things to become global, to get its uh, our American students' experience overseas, transfer knowledge back and forth. And I think what we really are, need to do is enter an era where it's not just the U.S. broadcasting outward, but it's really an era of cooperation. And I give one of my favorite examples to this and why openness is so important, why sharing is the mechanism. Here's something a few MIT students, and by the way, I know just from talking to some UCSD students, they could tell similar stories. But a couple of years ago, about five years ago now, Two of our undergraduates got some others together. They conceived, developed, fundraised, traveled, got equipment donated by industry, and mounted a program to take the summer and teach computer science and business to these 70 high school students. Now, what's important about them is that they're 50% Palestinian and 50% Israeli. And these kids did this all by themselves, and it has expanded, and I could spend the evening telling you stories about this, but that energy is out there. So how can we do this? We can have campuses or laboratories in other countries. We can have strategic alliances. But I think even more important, perhaps, is going to be virtual presence in other countries through distance education and through something that Dick mentioned I'm very passionate about because of my MIT OpenCourseWare experience, the open content, what I call the emerging meta-university based on teaching materials, scholarly archives, even operating educational laboratories at a distance. A lot of exciting things are going to happen. And uh, I thought I would end by adding a new bullet point on this. Massive computer games for science and learning. Now, for those of you who are my age or maybe even older, maybe even a little bit younger, you might say, what in the world is this about? Well, take a look at this picture. So there's a very, very complicated part of science that's called protein folding. And if you're going to develop modern drugs and you're going to understand, uh, uh, you're going to understand uh, how living systems really work, you've got to analyze and understand, or in some cases design, incredibly complicated molecules, things with tens or hundreds of thousands of atoms in them, all having to, uh, um, to obey the fundamental laws of physics and chemistry. You tie up the world's largest supercomputers to resolve these problems of how do you take all the different possible ways these hundreds of thousands of atoms can be configured and find the one that has the lowest total energy state. That's the one that will be stable, that you can create, that you can use. 
And so this is kind of an interesting scatter diagram where each of those points on there represents um, a different possible solution to this, and none of them are right until you get down to that one that has the little circle around it. This work is from a guy named David Baker up at the University of Washington. I had the privilege of hearing speak earlier this week. So he, like a lot of other people, had an idea. Look, I can't afford the world's biggest supercomputer. So what do you do? You chain little computers all over the world, and you sign on and volunteer your PC. And when you're not actively using it, it runs a bunch of cycles, and you build up thousands and thousands of these computers, and you solve problems. But David and a few other people have done this, but I think he's probably the real pioneer in this, got to thinking, well, if we're going to use everybody's computer, why don't we use their brains while we're at it? Because it turns out, you'll be glad to know that even today, humans can do a lot of things well that computers can't do. And so what he did was take these horrifically complicated problems break them into little pieces so you get a nice graphic display like the one I had back here. And then you have the rules and you have to figure out how to bend this and what atom goes next to each other. And if you figure it out and you balance and you get the local minimum of energy, you get 60,000 points. He made, he made a computer game out of it. And right today, there are literally thousands of young people around the world playing this game to see how many points they can get, and they're doing incredibly fundamental science most of them don't even understand. And of course, the best point of all is this is highly instrumented so that we can hopefully, uh, through cognitive science, begin to understand what is it that these humans are doing that the computer doesn't know how to do. So I end with that point just to say that this is a really exciting time, but our research universities are in trouble. I've showed you that we are viewed by many as an expensive luxury, that we have deeply declining state support. I chose not to spend a lot of time on that, but it's perhaps the thing that worries me the most. You're all intimately familiar with it. We have become very dependent on what has been a wonderful resource for us, non-U.S. students, more and more, they're going home, and our basic research is clearly badly underfunded. Yet, our mission has never been more important, and the field of endeavor has never been more exciting, because we create opportunity, we are the core of the U.S. economy, certainly that of the future, we have to deal with globalization, which has a lot of positives as well as a few negatives. We are the key to solving the grand challenges uh, that face us in food and water and health and so forth. And we also have this brave new world where people playing computer games do great science. And then there's the last little unknown, I'll leave you here, which is there's a truckload of stimulus dollars out there. This is a hard topic. I'm not going to opine whether it's good, bad, but it's coming. Some of it will come to our universities and our industries, and I think we have a great moral responsibility to try to see that this money is used as effectively as possible. But it's going to be an interesting few years ahead. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.